one of the great supports and pillars of Arminianism has been the idea doesn't everyone deserve a chance for salvation? This is a powerful idea. It has always been a powerful idea, but especially powerful in the uh, popular American mind. We are very democratic. We have strong notions of fairness and an equality of opportunity. And as I said, this has always been one of the great supports of Arminianism in the popular mind. The argument runs something like this. God is just. He is fair. And if God gives one man an opportunity for salvation, he will, in fairness, grant that same opportunity to all other men. If we were to draw an analogy, it's like a father who comes home after a day of work with a pocket full of candy. And if he gives candy to one of the children, it wouldn't it be a fair thing for him to give candy to all of the children. However, upon more careful examination, we find that this idea doesn't hold much water. It's not such a great support indeed. We can agree that God is just and perfectly just. But we must remember what justice is. Justice is rendering to every man his due or treating men as they deserve. No one, no one deserves salvation or an opportunity for salvation or the preaching of the gospel or any other good thing from God's hand. Everyone, every fallen man, deserves God's wrath, judgment, and hell. And now, in the present rather than later. Indeed, if justice, equity, or fairness be the only operative principle, we would all be immediately consigned to hell without remedy. We can give thanks that it is not the only operative principle. In the great business of redemption, God also acts according to mercy. And mercy is a very different thing than justice. If uh, justice is rendering to every man his due, or treating him as he deserves, then mercy is treating him better than what he deserves. You see how these uh, definitions are quite opposite. With mercy we have demerit in view. He deserves something far worse. But mercy gives him something far better. The gospel and its benefits come to us as a mercy. Not by the active principle of justice, but by the active principle of mercy. And by definition, no one can claim this as a thing deserved. By definition, no one can claim this as a thing deserved. 
It comes to us as a mercy, as a thing not deserved. In redemption, to complete the picture, Christ satisfies God's justice on behalf of His people so that we might receive mercy. So that we might receive that which is better than what we deserve. Let us sum the matter up in this way. Those who are lost, even if they never hear the sound of the gospel, receive justice from the hands of God. And no one can say that he has been less than perfectly fair and equitable in their case. The redeemed receive mercy. God's justice having been satisfied in their case by Jesus Christ. But no one is treated unjustly. No one receives something less than justice. I wanted to give you two illustrations of the failure of the Arminian doctrine. Cases that they have been unable to resolve even to the present day. When you see the shifts that they have made to resolve, then you see the futility of the exercise. We know that among men, some men never receive the preaching of the gospel. Some men will live and die and never hear the name of Jesus. They get no chance. The gospel never rings in their ears at all. The Arminians make shifts to try to explain this. Some have proposed that perhaps they are saved by a general belief in God. Now we've completely left the footing of Scripture when we go to such thoughts. Because the Scriptures say that there is under heaven no other name by which men must be saved than that of Christ Jesus. And some have even... uh, have even been forced to extreme measures and and propose that perhaps those who have never heard the gospel have an opportunity to hear the gospel after death and thus make their decision. If you can find a whisper of that in all of the word of God, uh, I'd be happy to hear it from you. This is one example of uh, the failure. Uh, Examples or illustrations that cannot be reconciled with the doctrine. Equally difficult to the case of men who have never heard the gospel is the case of the fallen angels. Some angels have been chosen by God and preserved from sin, but the fallen angels were not chosen by God, not elected, and they get no chance for salvation. None. And what is an Arminian to say at this point with his notions of fairness? God has given men a chance for salvation and then only some men, but not the fallen angels. So what becomes of that notion of fairness that if you give it to one, you must give it to all? Indeed, the fallen angels know gospel doctrine, but no Redeemer has been provided for them and no salvation. Very few Arminians have 
seriously grappled with this inconsistency and with this problem, but I would say none have successfully grappled with it. Their notion of fairness falls to the ground. Indeed, I think it can only exist as long as these concepts of justice and mercy remain in something of a haze and undefined altogether. My thoughts are brought to this matter by our consideration of the history of angels. Last week, we finished up our considerations concerning their creation. Their creation during the six days, their number being a vast multitude, and their organization namely that they are organized, although the specifics of that organization remain hidden from us and concealed. This morning we progress on to the fall of the angels. First of all, we should be clear that they were originally created in holiness. Uh, If you'll just take the ride with me again by way of review. You'll see the importance of this in just a few moments. We are reminded of their creation and their creation in holiness. We have said in general that it appears from the word of God, not with absolute certainty, but with some great probability that they were created during the six days. Again, when we look at the reasons, the beginning of Genesis appears to be an absolute beginning. There being no creation by God before that. And the eternity before that beginning has every appearance in the word of God as having been inhabited by God alone. This is part of his unique praise that before the foundation of the world and even from everlasting to everlasting, he is God. Some of the force of this praise would be lost if there were others dwelling with him before the foundation of the world. This appears to be something that is unique to him. So we know that the angels were, with all probability, created after that first day. And we can say with some certainty that they were created before the end of the sixth day. In Job chapter 38, we have a notice that they were present for at least part of the creation to witness it and to glorify God for his work in it. Uh, I won't recapitulate this, but I do think that the most probable arguments can be made for the second day based on Psalm 104, which does appear to review the creation days in order and the creation of the angels is mentioned on the second. But I'll leave that to your consideration. They were created during that time in perfect holiness. And we can present two very strong arguments for this original holiness. First of all, it is argued by the nature of God who is never the author of sin. So their first creation, their first authorship and original was holiness. And we can also say that since we have good reason to think that they were created during those six days and certainly before the end of them, God at the end of his creation, surveying all, pronounces all very good. 
sin was already present in the uh, creation at that time, we would be very surprised that he would pronounce it all so very good. And God saw everything that he had made. And behold, it was very good. And the evening and the morning were the sixth day. Genesis 1, 31. This raises questions about the time of the fall of the angels. And very much like with the creation of the angels, I do not think that this can be determined with certainty, but we can set some limitations. First of all, we know that that fall was, it had to be after the creation week. Uh, Again, God has proclaimed all of it very good. And right upon the heels of that, you have the Sabbath day in which God rests. And that rest does appear to be in a full and undisturbed satisfaction with what he had created and made. So this gives us one very uh, likely um, boundary that it was after the creation week. But we also have a pretty firm I might even say on this point a certain end point they clearly fell before the fall of man so sometime after the creation week but before the fall of man because Satan appears as already fallen at the fall of mankind and as the Lord Jesus says at that appearance to Eve he was already a murderer and a liar This raises the other question, when did man fall? And all we can say is that it's hard to be certain. The movement of the text appears that it was not too long after the creation, but uh, after that first Sabbath day in all likelihood. So we are left uh, a bit nebulous, but with some some idea, some uh, relatively firm boundaries for our contemplations. These holy and happy angels fell from that original estate and condition. At least some of them did. Remember, in our earlier studies, we saw that angels are rational and moral creatures. They receive commandments from God and they are expected to obey those commandments. They are volitional and moral creatures. By volitional, I mean willing. They exercise will. And they are held responsible for the decisions that they make with respect to that will. As all other rational and moral creatures, they are obligated to obey their creator perfectly. Perfect, personal, perpetual obedience. The scriptures are clear to us that Some of these originally holy angels sinned and fell from that state of holiness and happiness. Turn with me in your Bibles to the epistle of Jude.
epistle of Jude, verse 6. And the angels which kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation, he hath reserved in everlasting chains under darkness unto the judgment of the great day. They kept not their first estate, the estate in which they were created. They abandon it, and so they are judged. With what appears to be a twofold judgment, they are presently in chains, which is strange because they do appear to move around uh, quite well. These appear to be chains that they carry with them everywhere that they go. Uh, At the very least, the horrors of conscience and knowledge of the coming judgment. But perhaps other things are entailed in the chains as well. Limitations on their will and desire. They cannot actualize all of the evil that they desire and intend and so on. That is a present judgment. And they uh, abide in these chains under darkness until that coming future judgment when their judgment and damnation will be complete. What is this first estate that Jude references? If we turn to a parallel in 2 Peter chapter 2, we are left in little doubt. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. For if God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell, and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment, and so on, notice here that rather than saying the angels kept not their first estate, it says that they sinned. And so that created state, at the very least, entails their holiness. They have left that first estate of holiness perfect moral rectitude and they sinned and abandoned it and have been cast down into hell and note again the twofold judgment is referenced here we enter upon a great mystery that I think has yet to be solved in the history of Christianity it is very easy to understand why sinners sin how sinful hearts produce sinful acts of the will. This is no great mystery, a very easy thing to understand, and uh, something of which we all have a first-hand experience. But there is a great mystery. How is it that a perfectly holy being sins? Although this is very difficult to understand, and perhaps we will always be lacking the the mechanism, the answer to the question, how did it happen? The possibility of it happening is actually quite easy to defend. I do believe in your outline you should have larger catechism 16, Westminster larger catechism 16. How did God create angels? God created all the angels' spirits. Immortal, holy, excelling in knowledge, mighty in power, 
to execute His commandments and to praise His name, yet subject to change. Their mutability uh, presents the possibility of a holy being falling. In other words, a holy being that is also mutable can change. Consider the case of God by way of contrast. God is both holy and immutable, making his fall an impossibility. He is holy and he changes not. Throughout the sermon series, one of the things I've endeavored to do is to show that angels, as magnificent as they are, are on this side of the divide. God is the creator and in that he stands alone. The angels have more in common with us than they do God as creatures. And we see once again, the angels, like us, are mutable. God alone is immutable. This is what theologians call an incommunicable attribute. The idea of an immutable creature is a contradiction. Because this change, at least, is suggested that That creature did not exist before and came into being. So change is part of the definition of creaturely existence. An immutable creature is an impossibility. The angels, like holy Adam, were holy but mutable. Therefore, there was a possibility of a fall, a possibility of a change. How was this change introduced? We get a little bit more explanation in the case of men in that the devil himself provided the occasion and a temptation. But it still falls short of explaining the fall. In other words, it provides an occasion, but an occasion doesn't necessitate a fall nor the corruption of will. You might consider the Lord Jesus Christ facing the same tempter in the wilderness and yet without sin. So occasion and temptation doesn't necessitate a fall. We're still left with a problem. But the first angel to fall had no tempter either. And so it leaves us in some doubt as to how this could happen. Perhaps the mechanism will forever remain a mystery, or at least on the side of... uh, of glory all I can say for sure is I don't know what the uh, mechanism is and I don't know anybody else who knows either we don't know if they fell in a group or one by one through the solicitations and temptations of others who previously fell all of these things uh, seem to be hidden from our eyes some fell but some remained in the estate of holiness and this remaining in the estate of holiness is at least partially explained I think we can do partially we can say it's ultimately explained by their election we normally think of election as applying to men but we are told in the scriptures that the angels who dwell in heaven are elect angels I charge thee before God and the Lord Jesus Christ and the elect angels. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 21. 
These angels were preserved by God according to his election. We're not told the uh, means that was used for their preservation or whether God preserved them without means, but this is the ultimate explanation that God chose them and thus he preserved them. This morning I feel as if we pass on from one difficulty to another. This raises the question of uh, the possibility of a probation period, very much like man in the Garden of Eden. Many Reformed theologians have drawn what we might call a tentative conclusion that the angels did pass through a probationary period similar to that of man, a period of testing that would not be infinitely long, but after the results of the test, then um, uh, destiny would be uh, revealed and assigned. Entering into a probation, we would know that all of the angels were holy. The elect remained faithful. The reprobate fell. But the reason for thinking that there was a limited probation, and again, this is a tentative conclusion, is because it seems that the matter with respect to angels and demons has already been determined and settled. In other words, the fall of angels does not seem to be an ongoing process, but seems to have been something that was settled in ancient times. When you think about the angels in heaven as they're described, Hebrews chapter 12, they are described as the, the members of, as members of the general assembly of the firstborn, gathered together with the souls of just men made perfect, who are never to fall. They are called holy and elect. So it seems that their state or condition is confirmed never to be lost. In saying that, I'm not sure that we can use any language that's stronger than seems. We don't have any examples of angels falling um, as we move along in the scripture history. They just, all the ones that have fallen seem to already be fallen uh, from that uh, original time. And certainly the demons who fell have already been confirmed in their state, locked up in those chains, awaiting the day of judgment. Remember, when we got started in this, we said that this would be an exercise in probing the limits of what has been revealed, but we must be very careful not to go beyond those limits, nor to uh, pretend we have matters with greater certainty when we don't have them with greater certainty. One final thing, and here our feet rest on terra firma. We can be glad for it. The angels were provided with no federal head. When you consider the case of men, uh, men have been uh, treated as a race The entire human race was treated initially under the federal headship of Adam. So Adam's actions would determine the results for all of his unborn children. Humanity was was treated as a single corporate entity. 
You think also with respect to Jesus Christ, the race of the elect and the regenerate are treated as a single corporate entity under the federal head. His atonement and His righteousness is imputed to the whole body. So we see in the business of men, we were initially treated as a race of men physical under the federal headship of Adam. And then the elect are treated as a spiritual race under the headship of Jesus Christ. But this is not so in the case of angels. One theologian I read said that um, we speak of mankind, but not angelkind. They acted individually and severally in this business. Although they might have uh, a common nature, they were not bound together in a legal unity where one acted for all. So they acted as individuals, and we know that for sure. Some fell, and some didn't. And there is no representative head of all. And here, with no federal head provided, um, and indeed without the Lord Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God provided for them, there is no possibility of redemption. The epistle to the Hebrews makes this very clear. Paul says, For verily he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 16. So the Lord Jesus Christ did not take up an angelic nature to represent them, but rather he took up a human nature to represent us. A benefit that we receive, that they do not receive. From this, I wanted to take away a doctrinal conclusion and then in some practical reflections. But first of all, we need to tie up uh, our initial considerations. There is no salvation for the fallen angels. No chance of salvation. And this is very much against the Arminian notion that God's fairness requires that all get a chance. They do not get a chance. And I've not, uh, there probably are some, but I've not found an Arminian author who's been willing to say that the demons will get a chance. There have been some in the history of Christianity who have speculated concerning such a thing. But I mean, Arminianism... Properly speaking, I've not found one yet who is willing to make bold to make such an assertion. I wouldn't be surprised to find one, mind you. I'm just saying I haven't found one yet. Now concerning the effects that this has upon our practice, first of all, it ought to move us to great thanks and praise. This is particularly seasonable as we are moving towards uh, the celebration of the Lord's Supper, we are reminded of the incarnation and His body broken and His blood shed for us, for His people, for His elect children. We receive this great and precious benefit, but the angels do not. The fallen angels are fallen and they will ever be fallen 
The elect angels do not receive this benefit either. But they do long to look into these things as we have observed in former sermons. We do receive several notices in the Scripture that although angels are not beneficiaries of redemption, properly speaking, they are greatly interested in it. They love to observe its roots, its causes, its Christ, and its application. They delight in these things. And all of these things have become for them a fuller revelation of God to them and becomes an occasion for them to worship as we saw in Revelation chapter 5, verses 11 and 12. We don't use this language very much in Reformed churches because frankly the, the Roman Catholics have ruined it. But the Roman Catholics will frequently call their Mass the Eucharist. This is a great word. I wish that they had not ruined it and that we had not become afraid of it because it highlights another aspect of the Lord's Supper. It is a Thanksgiving Supper. We come in our neediness, yes, but upon every uh, every remembrance of that broken body and shed blood and the application of that redemption to us, our hearts ought to be lifted up in thanksgiving. So perhaps we can rehabilitate this word and it wouldn't be improper for us every once in a while to refer to the Lord's Supper as that Eucharistical Supper, that Supper in which we give thanks to the Lord Jesus Christ for these precious benefits that he has given to us. One final application. If this great benefit has been denied to angels but extended to us, what a great obligation are we under to lay hold of these benefits? If I might borrow Paul's words, If this salvation has come to men but not to angels, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? This incarnate God represents men. And we are reminded in the supper that he has paid the terrible penalty for our guilt. His body was broken and his blood shed. And nothing less would do, and nothing less would satisfy divine justice except that broken body and shed blood of the God-man. And he also appeared in our nature to render that perfect righteousness that was required of us. Also in the supper, the incarnate God offers himself to us as a limitless source of spiritual life and strength. In much the same way that bread and wine mingles with our flesh and provides vitality and strength, so Christ is offered to our faith as an inexhaustible supply of strength. And so we are under solemn obligation to trust in Him. And in doing so, we have been given gifts that are better than what the angels have received. Gifts at which they can only 
marvel. Let us pray.